All right, everybody, we're going to be in Philippians. We are so close to finishing Philippians. Like There was a great temptation to just say, Lord, you know how cool it would be to just finish it all today, not to rush it, but just that, that moment of that race being done. You know, and like, then we get Malachi. That's going to be awesome and convicting and challenging and, oh, man. But we are still pushing through the end of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I'm very clever with my titles. James does our podcast and makes sure that it gets posted, and so I know he loves my titles. Last week's was titled Paul's Concluding Thoughts, Part 1. This one is Paul's Concluding Thoughts, Part 2. I know. The numeral, not the word. Okay, so I really did go to a conference, and they emphasized the importance of the titles of your sermons, and I'm like, man, that just sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> so, so they're always pretty simple, but, but I'm sharing that with you because I do want to keep us um, rem- remembering this. These are really Paul's final thoughts. The letter is coming to an end. And here's what you will notice. In Paul's letters, whenever he writes them, there's a shift that happens at the end of his letters. He, he uses a, and establishes a lot of doctrine at the front of his letters. So there's a lot of doctrine, a lot of theology. And then as he moves to the end of his letter, it becomes very practical. You'll see this in Romans. A lot of doctrine, a lot of theology. As you get to the very last chapters, it becomes very, very practical. You'll see this in Ephesians and Colossians. Colossians, one of my favorites. I mean, there's this high Christology, this high doxology, which is just a praise of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I mean, there's this doctrine, just heavy in doctrine, the first parts of the letters. And then as you get to the end, because we're all wondering, oh, those are great verses, but what do I do with that? At the end of the letters, he tells you, okay, here's the effect it has on you. Like, this is what you should be doing. This is, this is where we rest. So there is a shift, and you're going to hear this next week, um, I hope, as we... Finish Philippians, you're going to hear this shift from doctrine uh, and, and theology to the practical outworking of that, right? Philosophy's okay. Philosophy's good. But if it has no practical application, then it really does no good. It's just a lot of head knowledge. So he moves you from the right perspective to the right actions in his letters. Next week, as we conclude, we will read the final passage of this letter and then and, and kind of break it down. Then we're going to read all of Philippians one more time to pull all of this back together so we hear it as one cohesive letter one more time. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. We're in Paul's concluding thoughts. He's right here at the end. He's got some more practical things for us to consider. But I want us to approach this with this understanding. If you look at Philippians and, and you've got the handy little um, uh, headings there, then it really kind of lumps verses 10 through the end of the letter together. Like 10 through, through a 20 really is best served as one passage. I'm going to fully admit that because he starts talking about the Philippians' gifts. Then he's going to end talking about the gifts that support his ministry. Like it all really goes together, but we are going to stop at verse 13. We will stop at verse 13, though all of it serves one purpose because of this. Number one, 13 is so incredibly wonderful. And number two, verse 13 is so incredibly misused so many times. I would like to believe that because of Christ who strengthens me, that I will impress my wife by dunking a basketball on a 10-foot goal. Like, I would love to think that. I, in fact, still try to convince her that I'm still growing and that I have not stopped yet. I know that through Christ who created the whole world and all the cosmos and has established the depths and spoke life into all things, like I know that he could help me to dunk the ball if that's what he pleases to do. However, there are verses, do not put God to the test. Okay, so I don't think that I will ever be able to dunk on a 10-foot goal. Just, just me saying that. But that is what we see in our world, Right. I'm not going to pick on athletes, but I'm going to pick on athletes just a little bit because I'm from an athletic family and I am the least athletic of all of them. But that verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
I'm not going to say it's not applicable to the athlete. I'm saying it's so much richer than how it's used in our society. It's so much better. But we will see athletes, and they'll, they'll put it on their shoes, and they'll say, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Absolutely you can. But it's about more than that championship game. It's not even about the game. It's about enduring all that life gives you. Like, it's a bigger context. But it wasn't just, I saw musicians. I, I was a musician all through college. And, and I've walked alongside um, so many others throughout life. And, and they have this verse, and it's not wrongly applied. It's just not fully applied. Does that make sense? It's about more than that moment. But we do live in a world where we have these lofty ideas and goals for our preferences and, and what we would like to pursue. And we say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But here's the reality. There is a context to that verse that really is so much more enriching than that single moment. That's what I want us to get. That's the last thing I'm going to say about the misuse of that verse because my wife has said I've already worked out all the merchandise. Like we've got our coffee cups, we've got our T-shirts, we've got all of our you know, ways that I like to um, brand all the misused verses. But it's not that the verse is wrong. It's that it's wrongly applied. And so I really want us to get in. My hope is... Not that I deliver this well today, but that you see the truth of what verse 13 really has for us. I spoke to a pastor yesterday, and he's been in ministry 50 years. And uh, he's the one, he was just sharing all these stories. And I'm sitting there just going, man, I need to learn from this, this guy. Like, I just want to go sit with him a little bit longer and, and gain a whole lot of wisdom. Because he will be one who, as we refer to, throughout the, you know, all these co-workers with Christ who we've already forgotten and who, because they're not recorded here, nobody's talking about them. He will be one of those who gladly boast in, proclaim the gospel, die and be forgotten. He's happy with that. As I'm leaving yesterday, he's giving me um, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones commentaries and Spurgeon commentaries. I'm like, I don't want to take these. He's like, Ricky, I'm 80. What am I going to do with these? I was like, okay, then. Well, see, that's Spurgeon, too. Can like, if you're not going to read it again, I'll take it. So he's, he's one of those who's going to be happy to do that. He's one who can do all things through Christ who strengthens him, and that was his hope and joy in walking through all of these moments. So I want us to look at that. He told me that one of his favorite things to hear was, um, oh, it was a great sermon, Pastor. He's like, you know what I tell him? There's no bad sermon. And I'm sitting there going, hasn't heard the podcast. And listen to what he said. It was very deeply convicting uh, on the pastor's side. He's like, Ricky, there are no bad sermons. There's bad delivery. There's bad preparation. There is no bad sermon. There's shallow preparation. And there's shallow depth. And he said, now I'm talking about for those who are rightly opening the word, not those who are misapplying it. He said, but, but if you get up there, and, and you've preached the, God of, or, or, sorry, the word of God and, and, and it means what it's supposed to mean. He said, then you can't preach a bad sermon. You just deliver it badly or you didn't prepare well. He said, but I'm saying that to say that the truth is the truth and it's going to go out and do what it's supposed to do. He said, therefore, we need pastors who are diligent, those who are studying, those who are working on delivery so that they can effectively deliver it. I just thought that was really convicting and really a good perspective because his whole point was if the word is preached, you can't stop the word. So... And, uh, and he just would, he delighted in that. It was really neat. He had that joy because the Lord is at hand. So Philippians 4, 10 through 13, here we go. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I know I could approach this and ask rhetorical questions of how's your contentment. I could do it. I could approach it in that way. I could give you an, an anecdote or a story that kind of points out. We don't need that. What we need is just what does scripture say? Paul has a very open secret. He knows a secret of being content. And Ricky needs to know this so desperately because I would sleep so much better. Just telling you I would. By the way, those of you who are praying this week, you said, hey, how do we pray for you? I said, sleep would be wonderful. Sleep has been wonderful the last two nights. So those of you who are praying, 
Thank you. It has been wonderful. Then you wake up, you're like, I'm not used to sleeping eight hours. Now I'm two hours behind. And so then it's like chaotic. So stop praying. Okay. (laughs) Philippians 4.13, though, really does. It's Paul's secret to being content. It's what we need. And it's not in you. It's not in you in your strength is what I mean. But it's in you by the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to see. But I've got, I've got to look at verse 10, right? We can't skip any word that has been inspired by God and that he moved men to write so long ago. Look at this, verse 10. First thing we're going to look at, the Philippians revived concern. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So he's here, he's given his final concluding thoughts. And as part of that, he says... Oh, you brought me great joy by partnering with me. Not because they were there in his presence, but because they sent him a gift of, it was support, a gift of some sort of support. Philippians are way over there. They sent Epaphroditus with the gift. And Paul says, I rejoice in this. You have revived your concern for me. And I thought whenever you just kind of slow down, you think about that, how powerful that was. He now feels like this, the Philippians are supporting him again. That's what he says. You have revived your concern for me. That word revived means to flourish again or to bloom again. And I like that because I get it. I shared a couple of weeks ago, I am not a good gardener. I do not have a green thumb. If you want something to live, then it does not need to come to my house. I would like to say that applies only to plants, but it also applies to fish and probably other animals. So I am not a good caretaker beyond my family. But I do love this. After everything has been, by my ignorant hand, murdered in the garden bed, and then it does begin to bloom, and the roses come out, and the flowers come out, forget how much destruction I wreaked on them. Like, it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. You're standing out there and you see the roses blossoming and you're like, oh, and then you go like, you, I love the smell of the roses. And then, then um, we've got these other pretty flowers. I don't even know what they are, but, but Chaz put them in and they're blooming and there's all these colors. I'm like, man, that's one, like, it's fresh. It's good. It's life. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And that's exactly the word that Paul used whenever he said, you have revived your concern for me. Your concern for me is blooming again. And I just thought on the pastor's side, what that must have felt like. Because remember Acts 16. If you don't remember it, Acts 16, uh, we read it together as a church a few times at the beginning. But Acts 16 is where scripture records that the Philippian church was planted. Paul and Timothy were for sure there. And then Luke uses the language of we did this. So Luke was there also. And so this church that began in Philippi, Um, through a few converts, has now taken root. And Paul says, you remember me again, and I see your love for me growing. But what that must have been like for that pastor to receive Epaphroditus in this gift from the church that he planted that says, we know of you, we hear of you, we're thankful for you. Does that make sense, that blooming again? It also reminds you and me probably that there will be seasons where our concern for one another, it doesn't go away, we're going to see that in Scripture, but it will seem like it all of a sudden seems to be blooming again. It's just going to happen. And he, he says that. So I thought that was a really neat image. But he also says this. This is what I want us to look at for application. He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So he doesn't even doubt that they were ever concerned. Like in, I, he says, I know you were concerned about me. I was here. You were there. I didn't hear from you. I wasn't receiving anything from you. But you were concerned for me. You just didn't know how to act on it. You didn't have the opportunity to act. Well, now they have Epaphroditus. He says, now that you have the opportunity, then you are sending that to me. And here's what I want to share with you. Keep in mind what we established a while back. They did not have a mail system. They did not have social media. They did not have phones. They did not have, sent te- they did not have ways of sending text messages. They really were concerned at a distance and limited. You and I are not. We do not have the same limitations that they do. So where Paul writes to the Philippians, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. It really meant they, they didn't have a way to funnel um, funds to his account 
or to send him an encouraging word because he is this nomadic missionary who's, missionary who's just going along the way and planting churches and proclaiming the gospel. Now they know where he is. They know that they can get a gift to him, so they do. He says, you indeed were concerned for me. Y'all, we, we don't have the same excuse. We have every opportunity to share the concern that we have for other Christians and for other pastors and missionaries. We are not limited in the way that the Philippians were. And I'm only sharing that because I don't want us to be deceived by this. Well, see, they went through a season and they couldn't really get it done. And that was okay because that's how the devil works. The devil works through very subtle deceit of, hey, look, they were limited and it was okay. I feel limited right now, so that's okay. We're not limited. We absolutely are not limited. You can pick up your phone. You can text. You can call. You can find anyone that you really want to through social media or through a, a network of people. We today have the opportunity to share and act on the care that we have for others. The problem for me is not that, that I don't act because I don't have the opportunity, but it's I don't care enough to act. The Philippians cared. They could not act. We care. We should be acting. So I just want to share that because this is a true rejoicing moment for Paul. I want you to get that because it's going to shape the gifts. Um, and it really ties into, keep this in mind, he is in prison. He is chained to a guard and he just told them to have joy, to, to strive for the right actions, to strive to be prayerful, to be joyful, to keep all things in perspective, to cast all their anxieties. And then he says, after all of that, he says, oh, you love me again and it feels good. Like, that's it. Like, there's just this rejoicing because we do not know, you do not know what that text message to that pastor is going to mean. That's why I wanted us to do that this morning. Show them that revived concern. The sin for us is that if we cease to care at all, and because we cease to care, we never act. That's sin on our part. If we care, then we must act. So Paul is blessed by this. Their love for him has blossomed again. What a cool image. He planted their church. And then I'm going to skip the next two verses, and we're going to go right to 13, and then we're going to fill in with 11 and 12. Right? We're just going to bypass those because we need the conclusion so that everything else makes sense. So this wonderful, incredible verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Brad Duplantis can say, I can do all things through Christ who, who strengthens me. Brooke Baird can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like it is a very powerful promise. It's incredible. Like you really can. You really can do all things. Like all realistic things. Me donking, I just don't think it's realistic. I don't, I'm not doubting God. I just think that if I ask that as a prayer request, God is going to say, do you think this is really in accordance with my will that you dunk the ball? Maybe. Like I might get some great street cred where people are like, that dude can dunk. I will listen to the gospel. It's possible, but all things in accordance with his will. Whatever, here it is. Whatever he's called you to, whatever it is he's asked you to do, he will do it through you. I'm the problem. Like I am the obstacle in this. But you really, truly can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So is that ministry? As he called you to step out into ministry and you're sitting there going, I, got, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, how in the world is this supposed to work? I know all my limitations. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Is that ministry? Look at this. Is it marriage? Now, marriage can be rough. Marriage can be incredibly tough. Not for Chas. I mean, she's pretty blessed right now. But, I mean, it can be really challenging, can it? And yet you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, especially when you get to those verses where it tells a husband to love the wife as Christ loved the church, and that is to die, to die for her, and that the wife is supposed to respect and serve her. Like, that's got a piece of cake, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What if it's parenting? Piece of cake. Kids are always obedient. They're always doing exactly what we want. They never say anything they're not supposed to to whoever they're not supposed to for sure so that what happens in the house does not go outside the house. Parenting piece of cake, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Your workplace. Or what if you're suddenly thrust into leadership and you feel the weight of all of that crushing in on you because everybody's waiting on your decisions. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What if everything is absolutely taken away from you and you're crippled under that? You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. 
I mean, doesn't that ever come up where you're just lying there, whether it's parenting or marriage or ministry or leadership or, or your, uh, I was going to say poverty. Um, we don't really understand poverty, so I'm looking for a better, lack of resources. Like you're sitting there and you're laying out the full landscape and you're just going, sitting there going, I can't do this. Like, I, don't, I don't know how to do this. Like, I don't know what's going to be the next. Like, I don't know where it's all coming from. And then, you know what? You most likely can't. And that's Okay. Like, it's okay to lie there and go, God, I don't know how to do this. I, I can't do this. You know what scripture says is you can't. Whenever I say you can't, I mean in your flesh. You really can't. You can't solve the problems of life. You've got 70, 80 years, 130 for me, but you've got 70 to 80 years. And all of the things that we face, so it looks a little bit different, has been ongoing from the beginning of mankind. And we do not have in ourselves the resources to be God, and we were never meant to be God. It's all beyond us, and yet we've been called to be faithful to God in the midst of it. You are inadequate. You don't know how to solve this, and you don't have to. Christ in us does everything that we need him to do. And in our humility, whenever we say, I can't do this, and y'all hear me, I'm saying that in the flesh side of me. Lord, I can't do this. This is too much for me. And if you've ever said those words, then join my club, okay? I can't do this. This is too much for me. I'm ready to tap out. I'm not going to be able to see this through. This is too heavy for me. Like, if you've ever had those feelings, and that's in your flesh, then join the club. You can't. It's okay. You weren't meant to. Everything that you were enduring is for his praise. You're completely inadequate, but Christ in you is fully more than adequate. And he will see all these things through so that in the end of it, you will say, here's what I brought to the table. Absolute inadequacy. And God, you gloried and showed yourself in that. So that at the end of it, whenever someone says, how in the world do you endure something like that? You say, it wasn't me, but Christ in me. And look what he did. And people marvel at the goodness and the glory of Christ. I can be content in that, that whatever God is doing through me, he will see me through. He does not put me in a situation and then walk away. He walks with us through it. That is the secret of being content. Has he gifted you? Absolutely. Has he given you talents? Absolutely. Has he given you strength? Absolutely. And you know what? He did that. All those things that we tend to boast in, that we, that we hold as our strength, and that people recognize in us, He gave them to us. The fact that I can get up here and and recall scripture and I can preach and I can share is nothing in and of myself. I am a really awkward conversationalist. I am introverted in my very nature. I am happy being alone. I hate to be in front of people. And whenever we have a conversation, if you've ever left that conversation, been like, well, he's kind of socially awkward sometimes. I am. Absolutely I am. And yet God doesn't let me step back. I can do this because Christ strengthens me. I can be a good husband because Christ strengthens me. I can be a good dad because Christ strengthens me. I can lead a school because Christ strengthens me. Any weakness that's apparent is simply so that he can work through me and you can say, I know who you are. Praise God that he's good, right? That's good. And that's the right perspective. That is the secret of being content. If you've not ever memorized a verse, if you've not ever underlined a verse, Know that one, because what Satan will tell you is you can't do this. This isn't, you don't have it in you to overcome. You don't have it in you to fulfill this. You don't have it in you to serve in this way. You don't have it in you to manage in this way. You don't have it in it, in, you don't have it in you to be able to have favor with people. Like Satan will absolutely destroy everything that we have around us and every opportunity. And if we just simply said, I know. But God, you've called me to this, and you are my strength, and I'm going to be obedient, but I know what I bring to the table, so you better be extra powerful in my life. He will glory in your weakness. That is the secret of being content. That's why it's bigger than a basketball game, bigger than, than a moment uh, in an interview, bigger than, than, our, than our life. It's God doing all that we need. So Paul's open secret. Here we go, verses 11 through 13. He says, I, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I 
am to be content. I'm going to talk about that word here in just a second. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, the ESV says through him who strengthens me. Um, I always just want to be clear through Christ who strengthens me. He says, I've learned the secret of being content. Now, here's where it got really cool and convicting to me. All right, so here's, here's some of the meat of this. The word where he says, I've learned the secret of being content, that word is a tarkis. Like, it's a Greek word. It's for those of you who like this kind of stuff, because you're out there. It's A-U-T-A-R-K-E-S, a tarkis. And it was the word that the Stoics also used, and it meant self-sufficient. So to say that he was content, man, I am self-sufficient. Like it had that ring and the Stoics would know it. The Stoics, I don't know if you know much about them, but we still use the word Stoic today. So let's just say a horrible situation happens. Um, Let's just say someone in in my family, one of my my grandparents passes away and and I'm going to be Stoic though. I'm going to... I'm going to be unfazed by this circumstance. I'm going to keep a strong face. I'm not going to let you see my weakness. I'm going to be firm. I'm going to be strong here. That's what, how we use Stoic these days. Stoicism was a whole walk of life and a whole philosophy back then, though. They prided themselves in being self-sufficient. They didn't need anyone else, and they were unfazed by the outward circumstances of life so that the whole world could fall apart, and yet they would remain composed because they would be unfazed in their inner strength that they can endure and face all things. They had within them the self-sufficiency to endure all things and overcome. Everything could be rationalized. They could find the strength. They would press on. That's what the Stoics believed. Listen to this. The word translated self-sufficient says contentment and self-sufficiency was regarded by the Stoics as a high virtue to be detached from outward circumstances and to have the resources in oneself to meet every situation. That's where Paul is writing to. He's writing to that culture, and he says, look, I have learned the secret of self-sufficiency. All right? And the Stoics are going to know what this means. And then he's going to take this whole self-sufficiency, and he's about to upend the entire thing. Okay? He is self-sufficient in that within him is everything that he needs. But what is within him is not himself, but Christ. And so he's going to up in this whole idea. But I just want to, to share this with you, okay? Because it's one thing to study a people group and to, to understand their philosophy. Listen to this. The Stoics felt themselves to be lone. I'm, I'm just reminding you of this. Lone, independent, rational souls. That's what they prided themselves in, the Stoics and Americans, what they believed, what they perceived about themselves has echoed throughout history. And is that not how Americans like to act? I can solve this on my own. I don't need to share it. I just need time to kind of work through this here and, and make sure, or, okay, I'll bring my spouse into this and, and we're going to get through this and, and we're just, we just need to be strong. We need to tough it out right here. We just need to be, we're not saying it, but we're saying we need to be self-sufficient. We've got it within us to overcome all of this. We like to be unfazed by circumstances. We struggle with sharing prayer requests and weaknesses. We don't always feel comfortable walking life with someone because you know, maybe it's not you. Maybe it's just me. I'm just telling you who I am. And if, if Trent were here, he's not feeling well this morning, then, then Trent and I could at least look at each other and be like, right, because we understand each other. But that's, that's who we are. Americans, we want to prove that we know how to overcome. We want to prove that we've got it all held together. We want to prove that we can make it through this. And that's what the Stoics felt. And Paul says, I know how to be content. And that's why I think so many of us lean in and we're like, how do you be content? Like, because in our heart, we really know we're not, right? How do you find that contentment? And then he says that he, is, that he knows that there's this all-sufficient resource that's within him that governs all of life, and that he absolutely trusts, and that whatever it is that's before him, he can overcome it because his self-sufficiency is not in himself, but in the one that's within himself, Jesus Christ. And that's the promise you have. Do you know how comforting it would be like to just dwell on that, what you're going to get to do at the end of the service? Just dwell on this, 
that regardless of all the outward circumstances of life that you cannot control, there is one within you who has absolute control over everything. And he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul says he knows what it means to to be in abundance and to be in need. And he says uh, how to be brought high and brought low. And, but what is that? Go to 2 Corinthians. You've got to hear who this Paul is so that we can really grasp this. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here is Paul's life. Just compare yours with Paul's. And this is the guy who says, I can be content in every situation. 2 Corinthians 11, 22 through 29. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 22 through 29. Paul wrote, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. Then he says, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless. Okay, so before we get there, why does he say I'm speaking as a madman? Because there were other people there who were boasting in how great and how good they actually were. And so Paul's addressing that saying, oh, are they a Hebrew? So am I. Are they a, a what does he say? Uh, are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And look at this. He says, I'm better. I'm a better one. I'm more. Because look at everything. He's basically not bragging. He's sharing all this to say that, that here's what an authentic life led for Christ could lead to. So he's going to boast in the foolish things. Look at what Paul endured. He says, far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Start with verse 24. Paul, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. It means five times if they, he, he was beaten and had they given him the last lash, they knew that he would have died. They knew to pull back that last lash and stop at 39 instead of 40 or they would have killed him. They didn't want to kill him. They wanted to make him suffer. Five times. That's what that means. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure and apart from other things. There's a daily pressure of me, of, I'm sorry, on me, of my anxiety for all the churches, now that's, and he says, I know how to be brought low. I've been almost killed five times. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been in constant danger. He knows how to be brought low. And he says, I know the secret of being content. Go back to Philippians. I have to give you a grammatical lesson because it does shape the perspective. I know, Drew, this is exciting. Okay. Whenever Paul says, I know how to be brought low, that's in the ESV. The NIV, I like that language better. I think it captures it so much more. He says, I know what it is to be in need in the NIV. So if I say, if I'm walking through Walmart and someone's like, how's life? I'm like, you know, I've, I know how to be brought low. They have no idea what I'm saying. I know what it is to be in need. That's easy for me to get. And I need that simplicity. But it really, in the original language, even more so grasped like the content of what he was saying. That, pat, that phrase, not in our language so much, I know what it is to be in need, but in the original, it was written in a passive voice, which was really, really cool. Y'all are going to hear about passive voice because it's really, really cool right here. Okay. I hated English in high school, by the way. I now have a master's in English. I taught English for 11 years, and I started um, not learning really grammar until college. I never understood this kind of stuff in high school, which is when most people find their aversion to English. I went to college as a creative writer because I love to write, and I hated English. And then I went into Dr. Schrock's um, systems of grammar class. 
And he started to teach grammar in this way where I'm like, why did nobody show me this before? Like he even wrote his own book. You can only get it at that bookstore. I used that book for nine years while I was teaching at Sacred Heart. And then I'd already kind of developed my own methods by then that I carried on to another school. It was so incredibly easy the way he taught it. I'm not going to be able to teach it that well. So sorry. You can Google whatever. It doesn't make sense. Here's what I'm going to do my best at. Active voice and passive voice. And you're getting like the quick blast through. Because it matters that this was written in the passive. I promise you it does. Okay? It, I wouldn't waste time if it wasn't. There, there's two voices that a sentence is written in. We tend to speak in the active voice. It's the normal way that we speak. The boy through the ball. Active voices whenever the subject of the sentence does the action of the verb. The boy through the ball. Okay? Boy is a subject. He threw it. He did the action of the verb. Everybody good? Okay. It's passive whenever the subject receives the action of the verb. So the ball was thrown to the boy um, is kind of, you know, something that we might say. But then it's going to start to raise a question of the, bo the ball was thrown. Okay, so who threw the ball? We might even say this way. The boy was thrown the ball. That's a more direct passive sentence. So subject of the sentence is the same. Boy. The boy was thrown the ball. Y'all still with me? Subject to the sentence the same? It would be wonderful if I had like this big dry erase board, but it's probably better that I don't have a dry erase board. Okay, so the boy threw the ball, active. The boy was thrown the ball, passive. The subject is there, but now it's receiving the action of that verb, was thrown. Because the natural question that should arise is what? Who threw the ball? That's uh, the problem with passive is whenever we say the ball was thrown to the boy, great. Who threw it? Right, you with me? Whenever Paul says, I know what it is to be in need, and it's in the passive, passive voice sentences means that there's an outside agency that is doing the action towards the subject. Whenever Paul, just trying to clarify this more and more, whenever he says in the passive voice, I know what it is to be brought in need, he says, I know that this lowness was thrust upon me by something else. I didn't make it happen. I didn't work it to happen. It's been pushed upon me Paul was receiving the action of lowliness. He was basically being pushed into humility. Does that make sense? Y'all with me there? Whenever we perceive our lives in that way, then we can say, we know the secret of being content. That's how instrumental that passive voice is. He uses the language in the passive voice of this. Whatever I have in abundance was given to me. Whatever I have in need has been given to me. Wherever I've abounded has been given to me. Wherever I'm lacking, all of this has been thrust upon me. Therefore, I can be content. We can be content because God is sovereign. He's either sovereign or he's not. In our best moments, we absolutely 100 believe that God is sovereign, which is just a fancy way of saying that God does all things however he wants because he's the king. Okay? In my best moments, God is sovereign. He's good to me. In my worst moments, God, what are you doing? Right? I'm overwhelmed. I'm struggling right here. The psalmist says our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And you know what pleases him? to strengthen and be with his people. Whatever abundance you have right now, it's because God gave it to you. Whatever need you have right now, it's because God gave it to you. And whenever that becomes our perspective, we can be content. Y'all look at this. Go to Matthew. We're gonna, I'm going to give you three passages and then we're done. And you're going to sit there and go, but you didn't put my favorite passage in there. I know. Men, bring those passages to Wednesday night. Women, Blow up your group me and your text saying, oh, but there's also this verse and this verse because there really are an abundance of verses. I want to give you three that frame what Paul is really trying to communicate here. Matthew chapter 6. The secret of our contentment, his open secret. We get a glimpse of it in Matthew 6. And I hope it gives you comfort whenever you pray. I think we do a great disservice as pastors and as leaders whenever we think that people know how to pray. They've sat in church this whole time. How do they not know how to pray? It's just talking to God, right? Yeah, the holy God who's absolutely perfect and, and he's in the heavens and I can't see him. Oh, So Jesus tells us how to pray. That's, that's where we are. But I want you to look at what he says before the prayer. So Matthew 6, verse 7 through 13, 
Jesus says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. And this is what I want you to see. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. There is a wonderful truth. You don't have to have the perfect prayer. And whenever we look at Jesus' model prayer here in just a second, then you're going to see that it's not about us. The prayer is about him and the comfort he'll give us. But I want you to see that in verse 8. Don't be like them. So don't just say a lot of stuff. You know why? Because God knows what you need. And he will provide everything that you need as a scriptural truth. He will provide everything you need, not everything you want, not everything you desire, not everything you prefer, but everything you need, he will meet it. Okay. Therefore, verse 9, your father knows everything you need before you ask him. And then he says, so pray like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's all about God. Your kingdom come, your will be done as on earth as it is in heaven. That's all about God. Give us this day our daily bread. So there's, Lord, be with us. Give us what we need. Forgive us our debts, uh, our sins, our transgressions, different translations there, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So, Lord, we're asking you protect us. Like, that's the model prayer. Well, but, but I've got these concerns that I need to kind of list off so God knows them. Nope, you're covered. Verse 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Should you still let him know? Absolutely. I know whenever my kids are hurt. I know it before they ever come to me. I still love it when they come to me. But I just want to give you that comfort that you don't have to have all the right phrases. You don't have to have all the words. Your father already knows. And so if all you do at night is our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. If that's all you pray, that's the prayer that Jesus gave. It's not a kid's prayer. It's the model prayer that Jesus gave. It fixes our perspectives. Everybody good with me on that? But I love that verse 8. How comforting that he knows exactly what I need. Matthew 6, 26 through 30. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. We talked about anxiety being that original word. It pulls us apart. Looked at that last week. Therefore, do not be anxious about your life. Jesus says about what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? And he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not of more value than they are? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Oh my goodness, there's five sermons right there. I can't do that. Right, But the Holy Spirit within you can make those words alive. And men, you can discuss it more. And women, you can encourage one another with those words. But you know what it tells us? That our God, who knit us together in our mother's womb, and who has redeemed us, brothers and sisters in Christ, he knows everything you need, and he will provide it. You don't believe me? As you leave, look for birds in the air. We got buzzards circling in our neighborhood for some odd reason. It's kind of unnerving. But they're over there. So if you need to come see a bird, come see it there. They don't plant it. They don't nurture it. Yet God provides. I know using the vulture as a carry-on bird is probably not the best example, but you get the idea. Look at the, look at the grass. I know it's brown right now, but you know what's going to happen in the spring? It will have new life. Same with flowers. Same with roses. Look at the trees. 
They did not plant themselves. They did not water themselves. They did not create the sun, and yet they bloom. And the God who orchestrates and holds all of that together in Christ Jesus is the one who knows exactly what you need, and you are more valuable than the birds and the flowers and the grass and the trees, all of that. The answer then, did you hear it? He says, the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's a perspective shift. Quit worrying about your life so much and just focus on the righteousness of Christ, and you will find that all of these things happen. They're just going to be richly provided. Y'all with me? One more passage, and then we're done. Romans 8, 31 through 39. Romans 8, 31 through 39, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? No, that's more than a Facebook post. That's a life life perspective. He who did not, so God, who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I'm not talking about a large house. I'm not talking about huge money market account. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about all that we truly need so that we find our dependence in him. That's what he will richly give us, all those things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God. Look at this, who is indeed interceding for us. And then I love this. You already know this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. Look at this. Through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul writes, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present here and now, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The secret of being content is to just realize that the God of those promises is the true God, and he's going to be true to them all. It's not that he's ever stopped. His faith, our faithlessness has never negated his faithfulness. The Israelites... As soon as they walk through the Red Sea and they, they walk through and the water's peeled up on both sides, they get into the desert and then they begin to complain to Moses and said, were there not enough graves in Egypt that y'all would call us out here to die? And though they are faithless, God is faithful. And he provides and he provides and he provides. And as they sin, he provides again and again and again. Paul has a very open secret of contentment, of his contentment. He realizes that wherever he is in life, wherever you are in life right now, is not your own doing. That is really uncomfortable. I like to be in charge of my destiny. I like to have the plans that I've made for myself, declares Ricky, plans that are going to get me from here to there. I know it's going to be wonderful. I've got it within me. I will prove myself to the world. I will prove myself to the world that is going to forget me as soon as my headstone is forgotten by my own family. The secret of being content is that the Christ who is in us is the Christ who works through us for his glory and for his people. That's really comforting. You can be content because he knows what you need and he'll meet it. You can quit being anxious because he knows what you need and he'll meet it. And you can rest in this, that the Christ who's within you will give you all the strength to fulfill all that he's called you to. It's not that he won't. It's just that we don't trust him. So I summarized it in this way. It is an uncomfortable truth that our lives are not our own. That's why Paul will gladly, joyfully be beaten five times and shipwrecked because it's not his own. It's for God. It's a humbling truth that our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And it's a very comfortable truth that he cares so deeply for you and me. The depth of God's love teaches us not to fear in any circumstance. He will be faithful to his own. You know why? Because in your weakness, in your throwing up of your hands, 
He is the strength and he's the only victor there. If you go all the way back to Exodus 17 and Moses' hands are, are held up by Aaron and her, then it goes on and, and they have a banner. The Lord is my banner. Like that became like their battle cry at that moment. You go a few verses down. The Lord is my banner. That is our victory. That's comforting. So dads, you don't have it figured out. Christ in, will, Christ in you will strengthen you to be a better dad. Husbands, you have to die to yourself as Christ died for the church. And you don't know how to do that perfectly, but Christ in you will give you the strength to die. Wives, respect and love your husbands. You don't have the strength in yourselves to do it perfectly, but Christ within you can. Brothers and sisters in Christ who are not married, you are exactly where you're supposed to be, right where you need to be, and God knows every single need that you have, and it's been thrust upon you. It's wonderful. All that I have has been given to me, whether good or bad. That changes how I deal with it. I just want to be obedient. Listen to the Amplified as we close. I love the Amplified translation too. I mean, I was going back and forth between all these translations in this, this passage. Amplified takes the core verse and then it adds in a few um, extra words or passages to really clarify and it captures it all. I can do all things which he has called me to do through him who strengthens me and empowers me to fulfill his purpose. I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. I am ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses me with inner strength and confident peace. That's good. That's really good. I like that. I just want to have you pray, but it's this. There's one other thing I would encourage you to help your anxiety and your doubt. And Jared's going to ask Jared to, to strum for a little bit to give everybody time to pray and reflect on this, that... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me or who, the one who's within me who gives me strength. You know the most powerful testimony of God's faithfulness in your life? Your past. Paul's past. Over and over again, he saw that God was faithful even in the low moments. Look back over your life. The worst absolute moments. The best absolute moments in God's faithfulness. He never neglects his own. So Paul writes to the Philippians, here is the conclusion. He says, I thank you for your gift again. I rejoice because you revived your love for me yet again. But you need to know, I really wasn't too worried because I've learned the secret of being content. I know what it means to be impoverished. I know what it means to abound. Christ within me will fulfill every need that I have and that he's called me to. That's some of the final comfort he gives them. And I think it's what we need too. It's easy to be anxious. It's harder to trust. And yet it's what we're called to.